He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyberterrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, bringing you all the cybersecurity news for the past week, that things you need to know to protect yourself, your family, and your online privacy. You can connect with us on our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CyberSecRadio, at email johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, and of course, thank you to our radio affiliates, AM820 News, covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News, covering the Space Coast and Orlando. So, Happy New Year's uh, for all of you listening out there, and hope you had uh, a wonderful Christmas and holiday season, uh, and uh, enjoying time off with your family. So wanted to cover something here, uh, kind of the top story of the week here. Uh, it involves me. Uh, I was in the Washington Post. Uh, there are a few other uh, articles that spawned from there. Uh, but talking about uh, Bitcoin uh, and the boom that it's had for neo-Nazi groups and extremists out there. So I'm sure many of you heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally. It's a it's a hot commodity out there right now. Uh, earlier this month, peaked out at 20,000, now a little under 14,000. So it's highly volatile, very decentralized. Uh, that uh, has provided a lot of attraction for uh, criminal groups uh, who I've predominantly been tracking uh, in Bitcoin for years uh, and others who have difficulty having access to traditional banking because banks don't want to open accounts for them or credit card vendors uh, won't want to do business with them, uh, particularly, you know, these white supremacist neo-Nazi type groups. So uh, after Charlottesville, when that happened uh, in August, I was kind of poking around. Uh, one of the figures in it has been somebody in my radar, uh, Weave or Andrew Arnheimer, uh, for computer crime. Uh, so I had some familiar familiarity with them, uh, but they all advertised Bitcoin wallets to accept donations. Uh, Daily Stormer, another white supremacist group, had hundreds of thousands of dollars. Weave uh, is probably uh, upwards in the millions that he's seen in Bitcoin. So a lot of money uh, by those two entities and individuals that I put up a little Bitcoin tracking bot uh, that you can follow on Twitter at Neo-Nazi Wallets. Uh, so any transaction to them, any donation they receive or any transaction outbound gets posted to Twitter uh, in about 15 minutes after it's seen. So uh, it was really a kind of short but neat coding project that's gotten me involved in doing some research in terms of how money has gotten to these individuals, how they're using it over time. Uh, uh, certainly my interest is, is doing uh, more cybercrime stuff. But in this particular case, I've had a lot more resources to work with than I usually am accustomed to simply because of uh, the national mood about these individuals, and rightly so, uh, considering some of the things that have gone on with white supremacist rallies and groups out there. So I, I put out this Twitter bot that's monitored their transactions and provides some visibility and transparency into how much they're raising, how much their assets are, and what they're spending it on, and it's provided them some degree of uh, aggravation out there to where on their latest podcast they actually made reference to it. So, uh, you know, guys, I'm glad I'm, I'm getting your attention on all that. Uh, you know, you seem to think that I'm unaware of your other pools of Bitcoin out there. No, I know where they are. I just haven't put them in my tracking system yet. So 
you know, if you'd like to me to do that, certainly you, you can ask me. Uh, so Washington Post uh, did this story about more in-depth research about how they came into this money. Uh, and Andrew Anglin uh, of the Daily Stormer in particular, uh, because he uh, got a large donation just after the Charlottesville rally, after his website was taken offline, he was having some real difficulty. He got a 14.88 Bitcoin transaction. Uh, 14.88 is kind of shorthand to stand for Heil Hitler. Uh, 1488 uh, is basically 8 is the letter H, Heil Hitler 88. Uh, so in essence, somebody out there gave him uh, a good deal of money uh, in the wake of Charlottesville. Uh, they have also advertised that they've been raising a lot of money because the Southern Poverty Law Center has been suing them about a harassment case that happened earlier this year and they've been sitting on those assets for a while. What's interesting is that the person that sent that 14 Bitcoin transaction, which is worth uh, about 200000 right now, give or take, uh, in U.S. dollars, uh, is connected to a wallet sitting on over $50 million, almost $45 million. Uh, with, with Bitcoin going down, maybe it's closer to $42 million right now. Uh, so somebody who is sitting on a lot of wealth, and at the time he acquired it, those Bitcoins, it was probably worth, you know, pocket change, $10, $20 maybe. Uh, and sat on it for years, and now it's worth tens of millions of dollars that he in turn is using for uh, whatever he's using it for, but also giving money to the Daily Stormer and white supremacists. So those kind of stories certainly are out there fueling the uh, interest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that in 2009, 2010, you could have spent 10 bucks and gotten a bunch of Bitcoin that you stored on your computer, and now are worth tens of millions of dollars. So uh, people who are not necessarily uh, savvy in, in cryptocurrency or technology generally are certainly interested. I know I have friends and associates that are part of these uh, Bitcoin groups trying to raise and make money. Stock exchanges are out there uh, listing Bitcoin futures and doing options trading and, and a variety of stuff. Uh, but certainly, right, you know, there's been a lot of interest in who has been some of the early adopters of this and where has that money gone. By and large, you know, I, I, I don't think a statistically significant percentage of people involved with Bitcoin uh, eight, nine years ago were white supremacists. Uh, as just a few of them were, and they got very lucky and have done well for themselves and are spreading a little bit around to some of these other groups. So. Uh, most white supremacist groups are raising cash in envelopes or checks or money orders and very ad hoc and small dollar stuff. Uh, these two uh, have real assets. Uh, there's a couple of other groups out there that do as well. So, um, you know, it's led a lot of them to thinking, into saying that Bitcoin is the currency of the alt right uh, or white supremacists or what have you. Uh, to clear up one misconception, right? If you may be thinking about getting into Bitcoin, uh, a lot of people confuse two terms, right? Anonymity and privacy. Bitcoin provides you a degree of anonymity, is that there's basically an alphanumeric string of characters that represents a wallet uh, that you can do transactions out of. If you have uh, the private key for that, you can send money into and out of that, or send money out of that wallet. If your private key is compromised somehow, then other people can do that as well. Uh, it's not easy to compromise a wallet, but if you leave it lying around, if you put it in the cloud service, somebody steals your password, if uh, somehow that wallet file gets exposed, 
then other people could access that money uh, and whatever you happen to have in that wallet, uh, assuming you have a physical possession of it. Uh, most new people are using uh, various uh, exchanges for Bitcoin uh, where you have what are, what are called web wallets where they're storing and maintaining that information for you and that you hope that it's secure from uh, criminals and attackers. There was, uh, I made a brief reference to this last week, I believe, a South Korean uh, Bitcoin exchange that filed for bankruptcy because they were hacked twice uh, and lots of money was stolen as a result of it. So certainly uh, there are security risks. Uh, but going back to the anonymity and privacy point, right, you've got this random string of letters and numbers. Uh, if you post that, then it's easy for somebody like me or anybody to know, hey, that wallet is, is, belongs to X person which is how I was able to track, you know, these various neo-Nazi groups are always asking for money. They've got to advertise where that money goes. So I'm able to basically know, hey, this wallet belongs to Daily Stormer because that's what the wallet they're, they're putting on the website. So there's tools out there that allow you to search for that stuff. That's how I'm able to post it to Twitter uh, and aggravate them somewhat. So we're going to take a short break here talk about some top threats, what to look for in 2018 with our digital partner, Greg Otto of cyberscoop.com. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now from our digital partner, Cyberscoop.com, is Greg Otto. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thanks for having me. All right. So here we're at the last show of the year. You're on New Year's weekend and wanted to talk to you about uh, what to look forward in 2018. What are some of the things that people should be looking at and what are some of the things that are interest to you? So Tell us, you know, what do you think uh, the next year holds for us and some of the big stories that we're going to see? Well, I think the late year uh, cryptocurrency craze is an interesting, um, it's an interesting area to watch because I think hackers are starting to see the attention being paid to cryptocurrency and they are going to leverage that for their crimes, whether that mm -hmm. is through the hacking of Bitcoin wallets, or it is upending a lot of these brokerage houses that we see that deal with all different types of cryptocurrencies. I think you're going to see a lot of hacks dealing with that. But also, I think that you're going to see a lot of crypto jacking attacks. We have written about this before in that criminals are seeing in countries where ransoms are not likely to be paid because the populace is still connected, but they are on the poor end of things, it's a lot cheaper for them to insert rogue mining software mm -hmm. into websites that those populaces often visit in order to co-opt that computing power to mine various cryptocurrencies. Um, that is, you know, very steadily rising in some areas it is only behind ransomware as far as an attack is concerned mm -hmm. so i really think 
the noise around cryptocurrency is going to drive a lot of the cybercrime that we are going to see in 2018. Well, yeah, and I think so. I think I've mentioned on the show before, I, I probably with you also in other conversations, that uh, a lot of the cryptocurrency craze is the value of Bitcoin that peaked out at 20000 earlier this month. As we're talking now, it's just under 14000 which is, I believe, tied up a lot with ransomware itself because most people's first experience with Bitcoin was having to pay ransoms to, you know, get $300 to get their files back. But even more is that hospitals and big enterprises are stockpiling Bitcoin because if they get a million dollar or multi-million dollar ransom demand that they have to pay or not pay, uh, it's not easy to get Bitcoin quickly, so they've been stockpiling it, uh, and insurance companies paying on behalf of their clients. So I think a lot of the price of Bitcoin has has a lot to do with uh, crime. Certainly, uh, it didn't start that way going all the way back to Satoshi Nakamoto, but uh, uh, certainly I think you're onto something there. Right. Yeah, and I, the noise around it is something that I've never seen before. I mean, have people that are not following cybersecurity the way that you and I are following it that are really interested in this Bitcoin and, and how this all works. And we know when there is a craze on the Internet that security is often on the very back burner when it comes to this. So as more and more people try to mess with cryptocurrency, I think you're going to find more and more people that are succumb the various scams and fraud schemes that eventually defrauds people out of their money. Right, right. And I, I'm sure you saw it a couple of weeks ago where I was just playing around looking for unprotected Bitcoin wallets and found one that had $18 million in it. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's staggering. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not often that I that I have my hands on eight figures worth of wealth, you know, but, uh, you know, that that's that's a first for me. But uh, you know, certainly there's a lot of scams. Just something I'm digging into right now is that people are putting up fake apps uh, for various cryptocurrency exchanges in uh, the Google Play Store. Uh, it's not quite soup yet, but it kind of came across uh, me this week and I uh, haven't looked into it. But again, right, it's, it's trying to separate people from Bitcoin because unlike bank accounts and credit cards where there is centralization that provides you some protection, you can call a credit card, get a charge reversed. Uh, most of the time, depending on the circumstances, if somebody defrauds your bank account, you can get that money back. If the Bitcoin wallet gets drained, it's drained. There's nobody that can help you. No, no amount of, uh, there's no professional. There's no central authority. I'm not even entirely sure the police would know what to do about it if you reported the theft. And uh, there's certainly a lot of hops and ways to, to get that money out where there's no, uh, no wheel to prevent them within a banking system. So the decentralized nature uh, of cryptocurrency gives you some benefits of, the perception of privacy you don't really have that but but to a degree you have some anonymity and flexibility but doesn't give you any other protection uh that traditional currency or for that matter investment instruments give you right totally and so some of the other things that i would see is i think you're going to see unfortunately a continuation of a lot of what we've seen in the past couple years where you're going to have some bigger companies obviously we don't know of any of them yet but some bigger companies that aren't following cyber hygiene something that is not patched that could potentially devastate their um, enterprise systems and hackers are going to find that hole and they are going to take, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's PII. And we're going to be having the same conversations that we've been having around 
Equifax and Uber mm-hmm. and any of the other breaches that we've seen, you know, we all kind of hope that we, we put these stories out there in order to warn people. But I think it's going to take a few more years of this until everybody's on the same page in that patch management and good cyber hygiene is really the way to go to keep you off my website, out of the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, out of the evening news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, we, we've seen these stories time and time again, and I think we're going to see a few more before we all finally realize that good patch management will really be, a, a, you know, it, it's a great way to keep yourself secure. No, I think that's that's absolutely true. Uh, we're actually starting to see some people have some real consequences for these breaches, and Equifax is CEO uh, the CISO, the CIO, or head of IT. There were three executives that lost their jobs over it. Uh, but there's a lot of people who think cybersecurity is very technical and complicated. And and we could say things like patch management. There's nuance to it and third-party patches and libraries and custom code and all that kind of stuff. But for the consumer, the small business uh, out there, a law firm, a title company, you know, these, these people that are, that are like 10 uh, employees, Right. Is just having Microsoft Windows auto update and update Adobe and Java and all of these other things that you use really provides a great deal of protection and people, uh, you know, still aren't applying it. And there's there's real losses being had there, too. Uh, but certainly kind of going back to, to ransomware uh, is that uh, with that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people I hear talking about cybersecurity and, and patches and what they can do to protect themselves more than in any other threat that I've talked about or dealt with in the past 18 years. Ransomware certainly has raised some awareness that there's at least some real risks out there. And on top of that, moving forward, I think from the D.C. perspective, you know, you look at these bad breaches, and I don't necessarily know that it's going to come in the next six months. I would put it maybe 50-50 in 2018, but generally I would put it maybe 2019 realistically that we might get a national data breach notification law only because the the breaches are starting to drive lawmakers nuts. And, you know, one after another, it's going to come down to the fact that Washington is going to have to intervene. There's already a bill being circulated from Senator Bill Nelson that's been revised a couple mm-hmm. times where, I mean, it might die before it ever sees the light of day as far as a vote is concerned. But, I mean, like we just said, I don't think these breaches are going to stop. So I think that somebody's going to have to intervene. And I think that uh, is going to come from Capitol Hill. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. We will be right back after this break. John Bambanek on the radio and on the lookout for the latest cyber threats. We're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. A lot of great information about things we can look forward to in 2018. Uh, in the previous segment, interviewing Greg Otto from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Go ahead and check out more of their information. But wanted to check out 
but wanted to uh, cover a little bit more about cybersecurity education uh, and some things uh, that we should be looking forward to, uh, you know, for the future in terms of when should we tar- start teaching our kids uh, about security, about privacy uh, as a society and uh, as parents, right? My oldest is uh, going on 11 years old now, uh, so certainly he's, uh, uh, Roblox is, uh, you know, this website where kids make games and, and play games online, so he's into that and it's, uh, you know, with the chat feature and some of those things. Uh, certainly uh, that's on my mind as a parent and I'm sure some of yours also. But, uh, you know, this is conversation of when when should you start teaching kids about this? The reality is people are going to be using computers and the Internet and technology for almost any job they're going to have in life. And even uh, if the job they're using for some reason isn't technical, they're going to be using it at home. They'll probably be having online banking or any number of things. Certainly they have social media uh, and the variety of tools that children are using now. So the reality is, is that. As soon as people are old enough to start using computers, uh, even uh, with some degree of supervision, uh, that's when uh, cybersecurity education should start. Obviously, age appropriate and all of that. Uh, Two of my sons are in the Boy Scouts, and I want to say in second grade, uh, they start covering some basic things for um, what they call the cyber chip achievement. I know a few months ago we talked about uh, the Girl Scouts having uh, some cybersecurity things they're working on. Uh, and having uh, girls uh, look into. So uh, certainly in small ways uh, that should start uh, at home and some of these uh, extracurricular activities kids are involved in, you know, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, uh, church groups, what have you. But in terms of uh, when to start it formally in education, I don't know if there's a right answer, but I know in junior high, for instance, uh, I started having typing classes uh, in t- 20, 30 years ago, I guess. Uh, so that strikes me as a good time to talk about things to, uh, you know, what people need to know uh, to protect their safety and their privacy online. Uh, a lot of kids are using social, social media and sending pictures and images and the like uh, to each other. So certainly about the time they start doing that, they need to be aware that things posted on the Internet can last for a long, long time. I know there's uh, postings to news groups and forums and what have you. Uh, that I've done from the 90s that are still out there that you can dig and find for it. So when posting things online, even if you're a child, if it can be attributed to your identity, people can look back when, you know, that child is 30 years old and say, hey, when you're 10 years old, you did this. Now, odds are that won't matter much. But certainly, you know, when they're uh, thinking about sending images to themselves of a somewhat intimate nature, right, there's a lot of talk about that kind of behavior uh, and various photo sharing sites that enable people of swapping pictures of that sort. Uh, so being aware that those things exist, communication online, right? There's a lot of uh, dating and interaction that happens uh, starting online anyway with Tinder and various applications. So certainly there's a lot of uh, implications of that, right? And certainly security of being able to really know who you're talking to. Is that who they say they are? Uh, or their intentions uh, on the level. But obviously that also is uh, a somewhat age-appropriate conversation. So I think in some basic ways, uh, middle school is a good place to start. Uh, but in high school, you could start talking about, uh, you know, uh, things of a more adult nature uh, because uh, teenagers are likely to be engaging or thinking about engaging in behaviors uh, where those kind of threats can take place. But certainly, right, when people start using email, 
being aware of what phishing is, uh, clicking on attachments and what that can mean, how people can uh, spoof IP addresses, you know, as they're using computers, learning about patching and why that's important and updating all of their applications and so forth. So certainly that should be ingrained in, in school as things uh, come up uh, and subject matter that comes up uh, where that's relevant. For instance, you know, I know a lot of schools out there talk about or, or want students to register for accounts to do extra work in math or whatever random subjects. So, you know, that could be uh, an opportunity to talk about password security and making sure uh, kids are aware that uh, reusing the same password or having long passwords is very important. So, uh, certainly, uh, I think there's ways to integrate that more uh, into K-12 teaching. Uh, but certainly, if, if your school, public or private, isn't covering those things, there's lots of great resources out there uh, for people to help teach their kids, help them prepare for a more online world. I know I've referenced StopThinkConnect.org several times on this show. Uh, another question that comes up, you know, again, forward-looking of uh, how to get more people working in cybersecurity on what can we do to train uh, the next generation. There's been lots of conversation and articles every few months about how few cybersecurity professionals there are for the amount of work, right? And these are pretty high-paying jobs out there with uh, immense job security, uh, you know, unless you do something nefarious or uh, clearly out of line. Uh, we joke, my fellow professionals joke, we have basically unlimited job security in an industry with, in essence, negative unemployment. So there's a lot of thought and money uh, going into trying to get more people into cybersecurity. Uh, and there's a lot of conversation uh, every few months uh, my fellow professionals have. Uh, one of the programs I'm involved in is uh, funded by the National Science Foundation uh, at the University of Illinois. It's a scholarship for service program where uh, you get free tuition and a stipend. Uh, so basically all your college expenses are paid and they give you uh, a couple ten thousand extra for an undergrad to study cybersecurity, uh, and for every year that you get a scholarship, you do a year of federal service. Uh, certainly, the federal government has uh, a great need uh, for capable people and skilled workers going into cybersecurity, not just for offensive operations for our intelligence agencies or military, but just securing the immense amount of information and systems uh, that the federal government has. Uh, a lot of universities have uh, are part of this program, uh, and uh, as the price of uh, college goes up and continues to go up, right, uh, getting two free years in exchange for two years of federal service uh, certainly seems like a, a great deal. Uh, so as part of this, right, in addition to their classes, their seminars and opportunities uh, to hone their skills in more live fire environments, uh, so to speak. So uh, I know in a month or two, uh, there'll be a handful of competitions at the collegiate level called the uh, Cyber Collegiate Defense Competition, where in essence, teams from universities uh, all over the country uh, compete in uh, a defensive competition, right? They get a handful of computers uh, or virtual machines actually to secure them uh, against uh, attacks and hacking. Uh, and it's a good opportunity to uh, like I said, train uh, for those looking to get into the field itself. There's lots of things online, uh, but there's also uh, a good deal of capture the flag competitions, which uh, take people kind of out of their box, uh, the way they're used to thinking about how using things, and uh, try to get, understand how things work to uh, to accomplish uh, a certain measure of exercises. So. 
Uh, if you're somebody looking for a career change early in your career, certainly look at capture the flag competitions or CTFs. Uh, often they're sponsored by businesses explicitly for the purpose of recruiting and finding, uh, talented people, uh, to join their, join their ranks. Uh, so, uh, if you're looking to get in cybersecurity or, uh, if, if you have kids in college, certainly encouraging them uh, to do that as well. A lot of CTFs are more geared towards college age kids. All right, we're coming up on our break here. We're going to take a short break and go into our social media segment where we take your questions about security and privacy of how to protect yourself, your financial information, and your family online. So do stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we'll be right back after this short break. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Wanted to go into our social media segment now, answer some of your questions of how to protect yourself, your privacy, uh, and your family online. To ask your questions, you can go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. Uh, on Facebook and Twitter at Cybersec Radio or my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. Or email johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. So we'll hop into our first question here. I'm a small business owner. I keep getting told I need to put together some cybersecurity strategy to protect my data. You know, what is that? What can I do to protect the data, uh, the data of my employees and my customers? Right. Uh, at the end of the last segment with Greg Otto, uh, we did mention a couple of things, right? Some of the basics, uh, what we call cybersecurity hygiene. You know, make sure your machines are patched, you're running active antivirus, you've got a good uh, spam filter in place, uh, that all the, all the various applications you're using are updated, right? Not just Windows and the things that come along with that and, and Microsoft Office, you know, but if you're using accounting software, that that's updated. Java, uh, Adobe Acrobat, and Flash, um, and every business from there starts having custom software that they're using also. Software gets updated all the time. Vulnerabilities get uh, discovered all the time. And many attackers, when a patch and update of software is released, they reverse engineer that, figure out what's getting fixed, develop an attack based on the patch. And it usually takes them a couple of days for something that's high profile, so for like Microsoft Windows or Office or whatever, you know, within a day or two, they've got an attack based on the release of the patch. So getting those applied as quickly as possible uh, certainly helps. Uh, from there, right, be wary. Uh, there's a case that I'm working on right now uh, that involved uh, real estate wire fraud. So in essence, what happened, right, A uh, somebody involved with a real estate transaction uh, you know, somebody was buying a house, uh, so they had to wire money off their, uh, one of their vendors, uh, title company, uh, got an email uh, a couple months ago, 
or a couple months previous saying, hey, here are closing documents. You click on this and it says, oh, log in with your Gmail account or your office account, right? They dutifully log into their Gmail and office to try to read this data. Nothing really happens. But because they tried to log into this fake page, the criminals got their username and password. They were able to get into their email, set up some forwarding and various things so that uh, when somebody was asking questions about a wire transfer for a house, it didn't actually go to the right person. It got forwarded to somebody else uh, so that the criminals probably, uh, usually this is all traced back to Nigeria. They were able to say, oh, okay, uh, Bob is looking for wiring instructions for buying a house. I'm going to email him back, hey, transfer it to this account instead. They walked off with six figures. What could you have done to protect yourself? Always make sure and be wary of the emails you're getting. Uh, you know, if you're doing large dollar transactions with a bank, ask them to put in some kind of second factor authentication, something saying, oh, you just entered instructions to wire off a quarter million dollars. Uh, press one to authorize this, press two to decline it, right? Uh, so for significant transactions for significant data, figure out a way to get two-factor authentication, right? That could be with your bank account. That could be with your accounting software that might handle payroll for your employees. Uh, certainly, if uh, you're a medical provider or involved somewhere in there, there's a whole suite of tools to get you compliant with HIPAA. Uh, but certainly look at two-factor authentication, right? Because if nothing else, it gives you a warning, one last chance to say, hey, you know what? I didn't do this. I didn't wire this money out. I didn't log in. I didn't try to change my password or whatever. It gives you a notice to your phone or to uh, another application on your phone to say, hey, something is up here and I need to deal with it. Because uh, uh, what I tell people, uh, you know, we can do a lot of things to protect security uh, and protect against hacking. But ultimately, it comes down to we have to create one last thing where, where a system will give you one last alert and says, you know, this is happening so that a human being can make a decision, right? Money is about to be wired. Do you approve? Somebody's tried to log into your account. Was it you or change your password? Was it was you? Uh, making that failure detectable so that you can take action on it. But beyond that, always be wary of what you get in email. Email is insecure. It's insecurable. Uh, go with your partners and providers to ensure uh, more uh, a more secure solution, something with encryption. Uh, get two-factor authentication, always being applying updates, uh, and certainly you'll be a long way down the road uh, for protecting yourself and your customers, right? And from there, there's a lot of customization, right? If you're in medical or financial, there's lots of rules and regulations on top of that. But just be aware, right? Your information, even if your um, somebody doesn't really deal with security or privacy sensitive information, right? There's usernames, there's logins, there's there's always something. You may have payroll, right? Uh, there's always something in there. So just be wary that of what attackers might find valuable uh, and what they try to to steal. And I said for for sensitive stuff, always take a look at two factor authentication. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bamanek uh, in our social media segment here. So next question, I got an Amazon Echo for Christmas. I keep hearing about how they can be hacked, uh, how and what can I do uh, to prevent it, right? And and certainly this is uh, also about the various computing devices and Internet of Things and connected gadgets, of which there are more and more every Christmas, and maybe you've got some uh, for the holidays as well. What I tell people uh, first and foremost is two things, right? And it kind of goes back to the first question. Figure out how these devices are updated, uh, if they're updated at all, 
uh, and uh, every so often uh, go ahead and take that step to update it to the most uh, secure version of software. Right? Keeping these things up to date will prevent against uh, attacks of known security flaws. So taking that step to protect these devices. The second is understand how they work and what information they collect about you how uh, and how it's used. For Amazon Echo, uh, it's actually relatively secure. Uh, you know, it takes voice commands. Many people uh, have them and are familiar with them. Uh, in fact, there's one sitting behind me as we're recording, uh, as we're talking right now, that I use to play music, right? So being aware of how they can be used very famously during, the, I think, a national news show or something, they were talking about Amazon Echo, uh, and somebody said, Alexa, buy X. And anybody who had an Amazon Echo with an audio range of that TV that also had uh, so-called one-click purchasing, uh, those devices then happily ordered all of that for, for consumers uh, who had that. So um, there's a certain danger of things being done simply because you say the right keyword in front of them. You know, Alexa, you know, buy a car. Well, if Alexa's going to buy a car based on somebody just saying that, uh, and a TV says it, or your kids say it, or somebody at your house says it, you know, you could be out some money. So you have to balance whether or not, for instance, you want Amazon, your Amazon Echo, to be able to make purchases just because somebody says so uh, in its presence, right? Uh, so in, in essence, there isn't much security there. Uh, it's just relying that anybody physically in the in the anybody's voice who's physically in the room is trusted well uh, that could include tv baby monitors whatever uh, so be aware of what these devices can do and what their capabilities are because uh, there are a lot of them out there they all do a variety of things you know there's a lot of talk about smart meters that are controlling power settings uh, and heating and cooling in homes uh, but always comes back to very similar things because in essence all of these things are computers they look different, they smell different, right? But in essence, they take something that we know and have already been familiar with, right? A toaster and putting a computer in it. So a lot of the same principles apply. You just don't have a keyboard or a mouse to do it. So figure out if it's a web interface, uh, how you can interact with it to make sure it's updated, uh, turn off any services that might be listening un unessential to their operation, right? Many devices will have uh, diagnostic ports or whatever, uh, make sure it's behind your internet access point uh, so the internet can't communicate with it directly. Uh, so you take a lot of these steps, you can have some degree of protection uh, against uh, people compromising these devices. So that brings us to the end of this New Year's uh, weekend show. Again, hope you have a great New Year's holiday. Uh, we'll be right back at it next year, next week on this same station. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio, my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. And as always, you can catch a podcasted version of this show. Just search for Cybersecurity Today Radio in whatever uh, podcasting software you use uh, will come right up for you uh, and from time to time we may put out special podcasts also where you can get access to that content as well so we'll be right back here next Saturday morning you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bamanek enjoy the rest of your weekend and your New Year's holiday mm -hmm.